Welcome, everyone, to another episode of the Illusion of Consensus podcast with myself, Rav Arora, independent journalist based in Vancouver, and Dr. Jay Bhattacharya, an epidemiologist at Stanford. Today, we are delighted to have on uh, Dr. Kevin McKernan, who is a molecular biologist and who has done some very compelling and interesting work that's all over med Twitter. Lots of people are talking about it. Some people are dismissing it. Other people are very, very alarmed about it. And that is the DNA contamination of the mRNA vaccines. So this is going to be a very deep dive. And Jay has a um, has a big plan and a precise plan of what to t- what to talk about. And I'm going to try and step out of the way as much as possible and observe and learn from uh, these two uh, great scientific minds talk about this. And I'm really looking forward to learning about Kevin's discoveries and the replication and the regulatory concerns around it and informed consent. And I think listeners are really going to appreciate uh, this podcast and will learn a lot. So get your notepads ready, make sure you're listening carefully, and this is going to be a good one. Thanks. Uh, thanks, Rav. Uh, thank you, Kevin, for coming. It is an absolute honor to be able to talk with you. I, I guess we've actually physically met once, but it was it was at a, an event where I, where I was mobbed. So I was, you know, it was... <laughs> <laughs> Anyways, uh, thank you, and, and and I'm really grateful that you've you've come on the show to talk about your your uh, very interesting recent finding. But before that, I wanted to give the audience a sense of your background, uh, sort of what led you to this point to uh, and, and, you know to be able to to, to, to have this finding of, uh, of DNA plasma contamination of the, of the vaccine. Um, and so, if I understand, you have a background in the Human Genome Project, where you were helping sequence the human genome. Yeah, that's right. And I actually, um, because of that race with Craig Venter and, and Francis, I ended up dropping out of a PhD program. So I never really got that doctorate title that you so honorably gave me, Rob. Um, but uh, I'll tell you all of my war stories anyway. Uh, so I started there very young, uh, 1996, I think, um, and uh, eventually was, for, for reasons I don't understand, I think just because of general um, attrition in the project, I found myself uh, as a team leader of research and development there, uh, building the robotics platform and the sequencing platform for uh, for Eric Lander. Uh, so we got in this big race with Craig Venter, sequenced the genomes. Uh, they, they kind of put together some joint press release. I found myself at the White House uh, shaking Bill Clinton's hand over that. Uh, in I remember that like press 2000. conference. So it was like 2000. It was 2000, I think, early yeah, 2000. Yeah, it was. Or... It was. Yeah. 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 And they, they, they sort of forced a, a friendly tie between the two groups, if you will. But <laughs> it was uh, it was quite an episode. But um so you know, after that, this is when I I decided to drop out of the program. I, uh, some of the technology that we had in uh, at Whitehead, we were getting all this interest in, in pulling it out and commercializing it, and so I started a company called Agincourt that uh, pulled some of the the spry technology out of Whitehead. This is a magnetic bead purification system that's used quite frequently in the field still today. Um, and that company uh, became one of the larger DNA sequencing uh, commercial DNA sequencing companies in the in the country. In fact. Francis Collins uh, anointed us one of the five genome centers at one point because we were really good at doing like Fosmid sequencing and, and some one portion of the Sanger sequencing price process we had down cheaper than anyone else. Um, so we were, then, we were sequencing uh, side by side with, uh, you know, Richard Gibbs and, and uh, Bob Waterston and um, Eric and uh, inventor, I think was, uh, was one of the other ones. So, um, but uh, uh, that, that company grew and then Beckman Coulter came and acquired it. Uh, we then spun it during that acquisition. We had another Skunk Works project to build a DNA sequencer called the Solid Sequencer. 
that got spun out in a company called Agincorp Personal Genomics that a year later, Applied Biosystems came acquired. And I went with that company to go and, and push that sequencer to market. Um, so then we ended up in a really intense race with Jay Flatley at Illumina, who is a wonderful guy and a really intense competitor. Uh, and we saw this massive decrease in cost of DNA sequencing. And I, I spent, I think, five years there working on solid and then also the ion torn platform that came out with, from uh, Jonathan Rothberg. It was a semiconductor sequencing. I think it's still out there today. Um, uh, and at some point I started, uh, we, we began sequencing cancer genomes with these because it was really helpful to sequence a tumor, find the mutations unique in the tumor uh, from the patient. And, and maybe those would be druggable like EGFR has been druggable with, uh, with uh, uh, ERISA. Um, and that was the hope. So a lot of people were buying these sequencers to sequence um, cancer genomes. And I got wind of uh, and realized from some friends that, hey, this is great that you can personalize this, the treatment, but all the treatments are toxic. So um, wh- what can we do to what about these cannabinoids? These cannabinoids are non-toxic. And there's some papers. Is that how you got involved with sequencing the whole marijuana genome? Is that because yes. I, I understand that you were deeply involved in that, in that the, 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 the whole, uh, I, the whole I marijuana genome? So, by the time that occurred, so what happened is ABI got a, got acquired by LifeTech, and if you know LifeTech, they they have um, they were like Vitrogen and LifeTech. They have they have um, products in every part of this market. So my non compete now was everything in my field. So I'm like, all right, if I want to leave and work in this field, I probably have to go in some field they're never in. Uh, and that's when I kind of put one one together that okay, there's there's a whole plant out there that hasn't been sequenced that's synthesizing anti-neoplastic compounds and no one's paying any attention to it. That's a huge opportunity. So we went and sequenced that genome and, and put it public. It's a bit of a disaster in 2011 because the genome was really too difficult to sequence with the short read sequencers we had back then. But we, we put what we could public and that turned into the company I'm in now, which is medicinal genomics. We, we make a lot of qPCR tests for looking at pathogens in the plant that can you know affect yield or affect patients. Uh, and uh, we have a, a genome sequencing pipeline here to uh, to work in that sort of ag genomic space. Um, there was a little detour in there where where the the laws of in cannabis were kind of going up and down as as laws do, and we backed out of the cannabis space and focused on epilepsy and, and mitochondrial disease sequencing, and that turned into a CLIA CAP certified lab that was looking at patients' genomes. A lot of those patients happened to have an interest in CBD because CBD was getting pushed through the FDA for an anti-epileptic drug, and it finally got through. Um, so uh, as the Obamacare came into place, the reimbursement for, for that type of sequencing was, was, was changing. So we, we moved back into focusing on all the ag genomics that we currently do today. Um, so how did I end up sequencing this vaccine? I was actually sequencing RNA from cannabis plants when they were getting infected with hop latent viroid. This is kind of the COVID of the cannabis field that's just decimating the cannabis field. It drops the yields like 40%. It's a little 256 base pair piece of RNA that when it gets into the plant, so some, some type of RNA interference mechanism just shuts down the, 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 the growth of the plant. So when we were trying to figure that out, uh, we were sequencing RNA like every week from these plants and it stopped working one day. And, uh, None of the reads were lining up with genes. They were just everywhere. And that's when someone in our, our informatics team was like, well, you should spike in like a known RNA to sort out this problem. Like, is it your RNA prep? Are you not capturing the poly A's from the mRNAs? Like, we don't know what's going on. Spike in some controls. And I was like, all right, I have some pharmaceutical grade mRNAs in the freezer. I'll put those in. <laughs> And I wasn't expecting it to turn into this project. And after we sequenced those um, as a control, it, it sorted out what our problem was in the RNA sequencing pipeline. We had a bad DNA slot that wasn't chewing up uh, things properly, which is kind of ironic given what we're going to talk about. 
But um, that, uh, then we saw this plasma contamination in the sequencing of the vaccine, and we didn't know what the heck to do. We're like, this is, now we're pregnant with information that is probably material to everything going on in the field. We're underfunded. This is not our business. You know, but so we can't, so we can't bury Kevin, this. So you, you, you actually got involved with this even before, with COVID, even before. Because okay? I remember seeing a, uh, a, a critique from you of the yes. Drosten PC, uh, PCR uh, uh, sort, of, sort of procedure to to identify the, the COVID test. Like this is the this is the basic the basic PCR COVID test used through much of the pandemic. Um, so I'm assuming this. Yeah, I'm, I'm assuming that's why people sent me vials. As I had published that paper, and I had published one with Peter McCullough on some of the differences between the sequences and the vaccine versus the virus. There, there's some differences that, that might be material. But this, this precedes um, the vaccine, right? This was like you know the, the, yeah, how do did, you yeah. Yeah, it is. It, it, so that the, my main critique there was, um, one, it was peer reviewed very quickly and they didn't have any internal controls. And that's a violation of Mikey guidelines. And in, in, in quantitative PCR, particularly with human subjects, you need to have an internal control that, that tells you how much DNA um, you have of the host. Because everyone's talking about viral loads, but you don't really have a viral load if you don't have a denominator. You need to know, like, how much virus do you have compared to how many cells did you harvest? Because the swabbing of your nose can vary 10,000 fold. So, you know, when you're collecting these CT scores on people and you don't have an internal control, you, you, you don't know what you're collecting. You're just collecting random numbers. Uh, and that was our, our there's a couple other critiques. I wrote a, I wrote a paper and uh, another addendum to that work to, to address. See, some just of the just, just for the, for the, the uh, audience, a CT score is uh, for, for PCR. What you do is you, you're, you take a, you have a tiny bit of genetic material, say DNA. A DNA, and you 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 have a primer that can attach to it, or a or or a little tiny sequence that attaches to it. You have uh, an enzyme which copies the 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 that, that strand of DNA that where, where it's attached. And now you have two, and you run it. That's one cycle. You run it again. Now you have four. Run it again. So that's two cycles. Eight, sixteen, thirty-two, sixty-four, one twenty-eight, two fifty-six, and so on. The number of yes. cycles is how much? How many times you have to double? Before you can detect, you get a detectable amount of DNA, right? That's right. Is that, uh, is that how it works? That's a perfect example of it. And when you're when you're performing that, trying to estimate viral loads, it's important to know, like, did I sample one cell from the person, or did I sample ten thousand cells? And if you don't know that, then you don't really know what that CT score from the virus means. You have no anchor point. Uh, so the first test okay. that came out didn't have any any internal control there's some problems in the primers and a bunch of other false positive and false negative issues that we tried to point out but uh, I, I fell mostly in deaf ears I think most people just marched ahead and kept testing but well that, um, at that point yeah. the testing was like a religion like you just had yes. to you, was, it looked I mean I remember reading your thing saying yeah this is this seems like it's you know I, I do I do health policy and uh, and epidemiology not molecular biology but like from my understanding of that molecular biology it looked like a completely coaching critique and you're absolutely right. It was met with deaf, deaf ears. It just, you know, people get, they just, people just want yeah. to be able to know. I mean, outside of the technical issues, the paper, like the conflicts should have gotten it retracted. Like two of the authors had, had testing companies and they raced it and they were on the editorial board. So they raced it through a journal that they were on with conflicts undeclared. And there's been several erratums issued on the paper because they had misspellings in the primers and everything. But it just became, as you said, a religion and ended up on the Who's website before anyone could reverse it. Okay, so you have, I mean, obviously an incredibly impressive background. You spent the last, the better part of, you know, almost three decades uh, deeply enmeshed in this world of genome sequencing. Uh, 
So uh, now, now let's let now let's let's move let's fast forward to uh, you have these vials of vaccines that that uh, that, that are sitting around, um, and uh, how, how, you have this idea that well, I'm going to just check to see if you know the vaccine is is not a DNA vaccine. It's a it's I mean the, it's a vaccine with this modified mRNA this modified RNA platform, so that you you uh, you are, are if you just if you just use uh, the standard PCR test and try to replicate, uh, you try, you know, try to try to run it through with a DNA polymerase or whatever, you're not going to find anything, right? Well, it certainly won't amplify with the, the COVID tests. You need you need to have primers that are keyed off of the codon optimization changes they did in the vaccine. Um, and the other no, thing but, I was kind of asking, like, how did you how did you have the idea that I'm going to try to amplify DNA? Because you're you're what you're the the finding oh. you have. Is is yeah. not is not that that there's um, RNA that you can you can de- detect. The finding you have is that there's DNA in the vaccine vials that shouldn't yes. be there. So how did yeah, you? So like, what, what made you think I, I should check that? I didn't. I, what happened is um, when you do RNA sequencing, it will actually amplify DNA if it's in the background. You're supposed to run a DNA reaction to get rid of it. And uh, if that's not running uh, to completion, then DNA sneaks into the RNA sequencing process. And, it, and, and during this reverse transcription um, reaction, it can turn RNA into DNA or DNA into more DNA. And so we, we, when we ended up getting the, the sequencing back and ran the assemblies, we got this huge contig that was like 7,000 bases long. And we're like, that doesn't make any sense. What is that? It has a spike sequence in it, but it has all this other junk in it. Uh, it was a vector from the from the plasmid. Uh, so, yeah, it was totally unanticipated. Um, and uh, once we saw that we had the expression vector in our hand, we, we couldn't quantitate how much DNA was there because this process of RNA sequencing preferentially sequences RNA uh, as opposed to DNA. So it wasn't a good tool to, like, you know, look at the read levels and count how much DNA is there by, based on read levels because we know that the process is tailored to, to capturing RNA. But it did, it was enough to tell us there was something there. And that's when we went about designing quantitative PCR assays to try to get a more exact number. Is okay? How much DNA from the plasmid is there versus the versus the RNA? How did you know it was a plasmid as a contamination? Or that was that was a hypothesis. Oh, it's or a great hypothesis. question. Yeah. So if you just take that sequence and throw it into like an open source um, annotation tool, like SnapGene is a is a is a is a piece of software that if you plug DNA into it, it will paint uh, all of these components of common vectors onto it. Uh, and so we threw it into SnapGene and it instantly pulled out a, you know, painted on a, uh, if I can, I could share a screen probably, um, uh, if I can pull up, uh, I'll try and do that in the background when we're it talking. Be, but, there's a lot, a lot of people listening to you on audio, so why don't you just describe oh, it? All right, so never mind. Yeah, so, so it, will, it will pull up a, it painted the bacterial origin of replication. That's a sign that this is a plasmid meant to be amplified in, in bacteria. It also painted the SV40 origin of replication, which is a mammalian origin of replication. Uh, the F1 origin, which is used to make single-stranded DNA, and then the kenamycin resistance gene. So all of these components are like, okay, this is clearly a plasmid that's used to uh, to replicate the the DNA in a coli. Okay, so so the, the the point is that you 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 make this sort of serendipitous discovery that there's this DNA. You stick it you you stick into this like database that automatically detects you know probably from a vast library of other other DNA, and it looks like something that a DNA plasmid would have now. What is exactly is a DNA plasmid? Like, what, what is like? Why, why would anyone think to use it for a vaccine? What what exactly was going on uh, with that? Uh, and well, uh, just to set this up, Kevin, just I want to I want to why don't you before before you answer that question, why don't you describe 
how do you make this vaccine in the first place? Like, I, I understand that there's two different processes that were used, one that was used in the randomized trial and one that's used in uh, in production that was actually uh, sort of deployed at scale, including probably the vaccine I took. Um, what uh, what what is the process? Because you have, uh, you know, you have a, a, the mRNA vaccine is essentially, you know, it's an idea, but how do you get that idea, turn it into a thing that you're going to inject? Like, what's what's the process that's involved with that? So there, there's, there are tools that allow you to synthesize DNA. Um, they're expensive and they don't make a lot when you do it. Uh, so you know, like IDT is a great provider who can synthesize. You can tell them, hey, make me a 4,000 pair, base pair piece of DNA and they'll charge you on a per base unit. But you don't get a tremendous amount of that out. So what they did in pro- the first process for the trial is they probably took a piece of DNA that was synthesized at a company like that uh, and then they amplified it with PCR to make more of it. Uh, and that amplification process was enough to, to feed the, the 22,000 people that got it in the trial. But it wasn't going to so, be so enough. Wait, to feed so wait, wait, you, have, you have the DNA that you've synthetically created base, basically a base period of time or something, which just sounds yeah. incredibly laborious. You then, uh, how do you, how do you make, create RNA out of that? You just, you put in an, an so RNA. So, yeah, once, once you have it, uh, once you have a little bit of it synthesized, they then PCR amplify that DNA just to get a lot of it. That DNA as long as it has a T7 polymerase site on it, a RNA polymerase will bind to that T7 polymerase site and just start making RNA off of the DNA. Yeah, now, so, in that process, they add in these new nucleotides that are a little different than native nucleotides. Like the pseudouridine. Yeah, that, yeah, that, like that, that makes that. more RNase resistant so it doesn't degrade as quickly. Um, right. Now, so, okay, so, so now, but in that process, the DNA that they amplified the first they created and amplified is that still around is that or in, in, or did they did they uh, somehow cleanse the the uh, the product of that original dna that that was that used to make the rna so there's when you're doing pcr amplification there's a lot more things you can do to get rid of the dna one thing people do is they'll put a biotin on one of the primers so when you amplify it you have this fish hook on it and you can bind that to a magnetic bead and pull it out and I think that's what they're doing, but I don't. I don't have full clarity on, on how they were on how that process was 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 going. That's what I would do. I would I would amplify it with a biotin and pull the DNA out with a, a streptavidin coated magnetic bead and, and get it all out of solution. Um, there's other other tools you can use to chew the DNA up, and we're going to touch on those because those that's what they had to reside uh, or, or okay. what they had to turn to when they wanted to scale this up. Is they had to they, they were getting tired of running PCR amplifying this DNA over and over again. Because there's some error in that process, uh, you know, PCR has an error rate of, of like ten to the minus fifth. All right, it makes a mistake every maybe ten thousand, hundred thousand bases. So if you put that piece of DNA into a plasmid that you can replicate in E. coli, you can drop the error rate ten to a hundredfold. Uh, so it doesn't make as many mistakes, and it's cheaper to to then synthesize because E. coli feeding E. coli is cheap. You, you you just give it some nutrients and the thing will double every 30 minutes. Okay. And- so so, so wait, hold, before, before we get to there, Kevin, I just want to make sure we finish this conversation about process one. So process one, um, they, they basically like, it's this boutique creation of the RNA, uh, modified RNA that's going to be used. And then they use that process for the vials that were actually injected in the volunteers in the randomized trials. Is that correct? Yes. Uh, if I have that right. Yep. Okay. Yep. So the, and it's, the trial and it's relatively clean. Yeah, very, very clean. There's no E. coli. Um, so when they when they wanted to scale this up, they took that that PCR product, which is about 4,200 bases long, and then they cloned it into a approximately a 3,500 base pair plasmid. And that the extra DNA is needed to teach the E. coli to replicate this thing. 
Okay, so, and, so E. coli, that is, that's a bacteria. You, you can find it in our gut. You can find it in lots of places, right? Yeah. Um, and uh, in fact, I think it's been used, this very similar process has been used to, to create uh, like in, insulin, for instance, human insulin. You, you teach oh, the... You clone something in there and expresses it and you can get the protein out. We actually, we use it on the Human Genome Project. We, 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 the pipeline I built at, at MIT went through purifying 20 million different E. coli clones to sequence the human genome. So every part of the human genome, we had plugged into an E. coli plasmid and expressed it. Actually, those didn't express proteins. They, they just replicated the DNA for us. They were minimal plasmids that didn't have any components in them that would turn it into RNA or, or amino acids. So that was just a, a tool to amplify the DNA we wanted to sequence because E. coli is really good at doubling. You have a soup of bacteria, right? Um, yes. And, uh, and, and what you're doing is you're, the, and the key reason why you want to do this, this uh, why, the reason you're not doing this boutique process, you're doing this other process, is because a, a billion people need to take this vaccine. Yeah, and now, you, now you can move it to like a, a brewery fermenter system and you can grow liters and liters and liters, kiloliters, if you will, of, of, uh, uh, of fluid at a time. And these bacteria double every every 30 minutes. And, and inside every cell, there's probably 50 to 100 of these plasmids. The plasmids have a, a piece of DNA in there that makes about 50 to 100 copies of itself once it gets inside of a, of a bacterial cell. And, and what, what what exactly is a plasmid? Just so, just to, like, is, is, is it a, it, it's a it's a little circular piece of DNA? That's, circular, how does that enter into it? Yeah, it's circular piece of DNA. And, and usually the plasmids have some type of selectable marker so you can fish out the cells that have them versus the ones that don't. Because the process of putting the plasmids into the cells isn't 100%. They typically do something like they heat them up, they heat shock them to like 40 degrees, and they, they, they become a little more porous. They absorb DNA. But maybe 1% of the cells will absorb the DNA. Uh, so if you grow that in a vat without an antibiotic, you're going to get mostly cells that don't have your DNA. But if the, if the gene that you want to grow is, is covalently linked in a circle, circular piece of DNA to a gene that gives the E. coli canamycin resistance, for example, then the only cells that are capable of doubling in a broth that has canamycin are the ones that are harboring your plasmid. So it's this form of selection that's, that's usually associated with most plasmid constructs. It's, there's always some type of selectable marker to ensure that the DNA that you want them to harbor is the only thing that can survive. This is not like a unique thing. Like this has been used in uh, for oh, manufacturing old. drugs. Yeah. Yes. So it's, I mean, I, I think I learned about it in, in med school, right? So it's, it's you know, that, so you know it's age old, uh, given, yeah. given my, uh, my advanced <laughs> years. <laughs> um, okay. So, um, so, so, but, but you have, so like, but you have the process, right? So you have to, uh, it's not enough. You can't just like feed somebody the E. coli. You have to somehow clean it so that you're not, because E. coli has, you know, cell wall, uh, oh, yeah. uh, uh, things that can cause, you know, allergic reactions, it can, all, all kinds of nasty stuff potentially could happen. So you can't just like give somebody no this way. brew that you just made, right? So, so what do you do with that? So you have to lice open the cells and then clean away all of the debris and, and capture the DNA away from the E. coli's genomic DNA. Because now when you, when you crack, go, crack open an E. coli cell, you have this mixed bag. You've got, you've got a, a six megabase circular chromosome from E. coli, and then you have your plasmid, and you have to separate those apart. And of course, all of the, the, the toxic parts of the cellular membrane, like the endotoxin, is now contaminating your product. Uh, and, and that's actually probably the hardest thing to get rid of. 
Um, in fact, those, that, that's where I've, I've worked with endotoxin issues before with David Sabatini. We had um, we were doing reverse transfection microarrays where you put these plasmids down on gelatin on slides, grow cells on them, and they absorb it and and, and express whatever plasmid you have there. Uh, they're they're very the cells are very sensitive to these endotoxins from E. coli because they they trigger an immune response and anaphylaxis and sometimes sepsis. So you, it's whenever you see plasmids as injectables, you have to really dig into the endotoxin levels because uh, that's the number one risk coming out of this process. Now, um, we, we didn't do any measurements of endotoxins. We don't we don't have those tools here. But um, I have done endotoxin work in the past, and the assays are notoriously complex. A very narrow dynamic range, and we know they're inhibited by LNPs. So there, there, there's a host of issues in, in this particular field related to endotoxins. So, well, hey, let's break that up because I think it's important for listeners to understand what you just said. So uh, endotoxins are uh, cell wall components of E. coli. The E. coli are used in order to essentially like replicate, to, to like have a factory for creating lots and lots of copies of the of the mRNA vaccine uh, product. Um, it, the, it's it's sitting there in the soup. You you basically lice it and try to f- figure out ways to like remove the remove all this contamination, but sometimes a little bit of that cell wall debris is left over. That's right. called endotoxin, and it can cause yes. all kinds of allergic reactions and other things in people. We don't. But uh, now you said also that the LNP. What what is the LNP? That's the lipid nanoparticles. That's the lipid nanoparticle. That in yeah. which the va- the vaccine is encased. Right. So how right. does how would that interact with the endotoxin? What what is what do you well, what it you could hide that? it. So if you were to take this uh, a plasmid that you've extracted and there's some let's say there's some residual um, endotoxin present, and you put it inside uh, an LNP, if you want to go and assay for for endotoxin at that point, the LNP is probably going to shield it from the assay. It's going to probably be internalized and you won't see it. So it's important so you have they have endotoxin sitting there inside this little little uh uh you know sort of sphere of, of uh, lip or not nanoparticle and that gets it's going to probably be on the membrane like just like it is on the on, on the, the e. coli cell wall is that no, the endotoxins no. it's going to want to be sitting on the lnp's membrane as if it's a new it's its new home <laughs> it has these okay. characteristics that kind of sit it on the on the on the on the uh, on the cell wall if you will so um, so they, they, they probably have to do all this endotoxin measurement before they package into LNPs. And um, there's some assays out there that they're using. They're known as LAL assays that require horseshoe blood um, to, to measure them. And they're notorious for having a narrow dynamic range. There's other ways to do this with mass spec, but we didn't, we didn't see that in any of the disclosures. So um, they're using something that is arguably um, underquantitating it. Now, the, the reason we're really zoned in on this is, one, yeah, there's anaphylaxis we see all over VARES, and we saw videos of people getting you know, injections and dropping uh, with, with shock in, in 15 minutes that everyone line thought that was PEG, but it could possibly be this endotoxin as well. Uh, the, it's just that there's a lot of literature out there on spike protein exacerbating. Yeah, PEG, PEG uh, just, just so for, again, for the audience uh, that, that is not familiar, PEG is, a, is an adjuvant, an additional thing that, that's added on. To the vaccine? It is, yeah. It's, uh, it's part of the, the makeup of the LNPs. They throw some polyethylene glycol in there, and some people do have um, allergic reactions to that upon injection. So um, that is uh, that is a, a, a concern. But uh, an unappreciated one, I think, is this this LNP, or I'm sorry, this um, this endotoxin. Also, It's also known as LPS. I've been using endotoxin because people confuse LPS with LNPs, and it's, it's just uh, easier to <laughs> keep them apart that way. But the um, there are there's literature on spike protein being exacer- exacerbating this endotoxin effect. So we have a drug that gets injected and makes spike protein, which is hypersensitized to there being any endotoxin around. So uh, the, the the limits need to be really really low for endotoxin pro- with this product more so than others. And um, okay. most so, so- of the documentation we have is redacted on the endotoxin levels. Right. So so you have you have 
really just it's two one one major finding and one possible finding uh, from what you did. So what you did what you did is you you had some vials of the the COVID vaccine that uh, sounds like people sent to you. Um, yes, and you uh, have this like serendipitous discovery of this DNA contamination, which shouldn't be there. You 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 check it, and it turns out to be a plasmid. And you you and of course the plasmids there because the manufacturing process of the vaccine requires the plasmid, and normally you would expect it to be cleaned out during the process before yes. it's injected in humans, and yet it's not entirely cleaned out sitting there yeah, and, in the vial where it shouldn't be. And an important point here is that the trial was run on very clean material that didn't have this. We, we, we've now switched to a new process that has other risks that weren't present in right. the trial. Right. So this, this was the, this was, so, so we, had, we had process one, as we talked about a little earlier, that's used in the trial, tens of thousands of people. Then process two uh, with the E. coli, it's used in billions of people, right. potentially. Um, and and so you, uh, it, you know, and it, you have to may probably have this different manufacturing process, or else you couldn't have scaled it so so quickly, um, which makes some sense. But there was some obligation to make sure that that the E. coli de debris and all of that other stuff, the DNA plasmid, was cleaned out of the vials before it was was injected. Right? Um, okay. So you you have this finding, Kevin, and I remember seeing the finding. And I thought to myself, I think you posted online, and then I looked at your paper and I thought, okay, this is this conceptually it makes it makes uh it's it's not it's not that hard to see you just check to see if there's dna where there shouldn't be in there and you're you're saying that in these vials you find there's dna and i remember there was a, a reaction on online to it with this with a lot of the folks who who like the uh who've been sort of like the big cheerleaders for for the vaccines came back and said oh well look uh uh this is just kevin finding it's one result um, you know, we don't we don't know for sure uh, if, uh, whether or whether it is in lots of other vials. Who knows where those vials came from? That those that those kinds of things. Um, but then what I saw, uh, and I'm sure this this that you were you were very happy about this. I, I certainly was when I saw this because it makes me happy when science works. There were other groups that launched into it and did the same exact experiment that you suggested that you had done. Sort of a replication of your study. Now, what what did they find? Well, so I was expecting this pushback, having been in this COVID field for three years. And I think I knew putting this to peer review would take so long uh, and maybe never get through because of how politicized it was. So I was like, the best thing we can do is design, is make the replication easier. Uh, design a PCR process that lowers the cost of replication to a couple hundred bucks. That way more people can do it because asking the world to replicate an RNA sequencing experiment, it's, you know, it's several thousand dollars. It probably won't happen. So we spent the effort to design PCR products uh, and primers, put those public for anyone to download. And by doing that, a lot of other people were able to pick up on this and check it very quickly. Um, Dr. Sin Lee did this at Milford Molecular. Uh, then Dr. Or, um, Philip Buckholtz did it down at, at USC. Uh, and now uh, we've seen it in Germany, we've seen it in Japan, we've seen it in, in, in Canada. It's it's uh, it's kind of taken a life of its own. All, all the, and, and everyone who's doing it is finding something a little bit different, which is helping a, you know put a piece of the puzzle together. So it's it's really really helpful. It's the way science should be: decentralized and uh, and sharing and open. Um, so yeah, that, so that was, it was with Pfizer and Moderna, Kevin, just, it's not just Pfizer. Did, it's also, so Moderna. we did Pfizer and Moderna initially, and, um, we only had, uh, bivalent Pfizer and Moderna that were not expired, but they were opened. And then we had expired Pfizer monovalence, but we didn't have any Moderna monovalence. So that's all we were able to work with here in Beverly. 
and then um, Philip Buchholz just zeroed in on the the Pfizer lots he had. I don't think he had any Modernas. Uh, the, the Canadian group had more Modernas than they had Pfizer's. And um, I'm actually I'm not I'm not to speed in what Bridget Conan had in in Germany, but she 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 checked a few lots too, and I think hers were more. Um, uh, you know, Pfizer or BioNTech, I should be saying, um, uh, in, in Germany. So um, they, they all have it, but there's more in the Pfizer ones than there are in the Moderna ones. Uh, so far, surveyed to date, there's been, uh, you know, a higher level of DNA contamination in Pfizer's. Okay. So, so you, I mean, this is, this, I agree with you. This sounds like good science. Like it's not just people take your word for it. They, they have checked you. Uh, a whole bunch of other independent groups that are not affiliated with you have checked you uh, and, and independently found your result, which is that there's this uh, plasmid contamination of the vials of, of and, 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 it's, and it sounds like it's not uniform, as you might expect if the, if the uh, manufacturing process is somewhat lax in, in error checking, right? So, some yeah, vials actually, have more. Yeah, yeah, there's a big history of this in the EMA disclosures. Um, they had Pfizer give them 10, 10 vials of information. The EMA didn't check this themselves. They said, Pfizer, tell us how much double-stranded DNA contamination you have. And Pfizer gave them 10 lots that varied by 815-fold. I think the lowest one was like one nanogram per milligram, and then one was 815. Now, the 815 one, they put an asterisk on saying, well, this was an artifact of a bad DNA slot. I was like, I... I understand that problem. This is why I'm here. <laughs> I had a bad DNA slot in my, my RNA-seq, so this is really ironic. Um, but they had another one that was like 211, which was over the limit as well. So even if you throw out the one lot they had that was bad, they still had a variance of 211. But it's also a sign that amongst 10 lots that Pfizer gets to cherry pick and hand data to the EMA, that they can't find anything that's within one order of magnitude uh, of, of a you know, standard deviation, they're, 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 they're across a 200, over 200 fold variation in just what they're giving to, giving to the EMA. Um, so, so now, Kevin, just, just, just to unpack that. So like Pfizer is, Pfizer needs to set in order to get approval from EMA is the European version of the FDA, right? The, yes, like they, yeah. they, they approve drug, drugs for Europe. Um, in order to get approval, they need to, Pfizer needs to convince the EMA that they have manufacturing processes that are producing like, you know, safe, safe products that, that are being injected in all, all these folks in Europe. Um, so uh, they, what, what does Pfizer send to Europe? Like what, what exactly do they say? They, send just send, they, send? they just send numbers on a page. So, you know, whether they're true or not is, is up to someone else to verify, but I don't think the EMA did any analysis themselves. They didn't, they didn't go and confirm their numbers with their own PCR. They just so what, said, okay. What, what we, did Pfizer tell the EMA about um, the plasma contamination. So the interesting thing is that they told them they had background DNA and here were the levels. They also gave them the plasmid map of their, um, of the sequence that they, that they thought they, however, they, they hid some of the components of it. Uh, they, they didn't disclose the SV40 regions, um, which is very bizarre because I, I didn't discover SV40. I plugged that sequence into snap gene Okay, okay so let, let's 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 talk let's talk about that because the the, the SV40 is 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 a particular focus of something that's it, that was in the plasmid um, sequence. Now, right. why? why not, like I've heard a lot of folks talk about this, and um, and they make some 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 claims that are that are you know frankly alarming. Um, although I have to say, I, I haven't yet seen the correlation in the epidemiological data that, that has caused me to say that I, sh I should be alarmed. So let's, let's just right. preface it with this. But let's start with why is it a cons particular concern that this particular sequence, this, this SV40, simian virus 40, um, yes. right, uh, 
what is, is what is what is SB forty? Why do why should we care about SB forty? What's specifically important about it? So it's it is a it's normally a five point two kilobase or fifty two hundred base virus that was notorious for having contaminated the polio vaccines. Uh, and there's a big debate as to whether this caused cancer or not. And I'm not the right person to answer that. There's that debate's been going on for 20 years or more. Uh, but it's it's found in a lot of tumors. That this SV40. Now now this vaccine doesn't have the whole virus. It has like eight percent of it. it they, they've taken various components of that virus and pulled them out as you, you as biotechnology tools to help drive this canamycin resistance. So in order to get this canamycin resistance gene to behave, you have to put a promoter in front of it. And they chose to put SV40 in front of it. Um, okay, they, wait, wait. So uh, just, just, just let me let me flesh that out. So because you know, I want, I want to make sure everyone understands. So in order for the, the manufacturing process, in order to make sure that they got just the Eli that it, uh, E. coli that had uptaken the virus, uh, uh, uptaken the the DNA plasmid, th- they uh, treat it with an antibiotic, kentamycin. The yes. the bacteria that had uptaken the plasmid have a sequence that essentially makes it immune to kentamycin. Right. If the plasmid's there. Yeah. And, and in order to make the bacteria produce this thing that just deactivates the kentamycin, they put this SV40 promoter, which they drew from a, 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 a essentially a, a, a monkey virus, right? Or something. A yes. simian, and so, um, and then it's known that if you have that in front of the, of the, the kentamycin res, uh, uh, resistance gene, then it'll, the bacteria will produce the kentamycin resistance gene. Otherwise it won't. Is that, is that yes. the reasoning? Yeah. And, okay. and that's how you can grow massive amounts of the E. coli that are harboring and replicating this, this, uh, this plasmid. Now they, they didn't actually, Pfizer didn't actually need this SV40 promoter because the plasmid had a redundant promoter in it known as AMPR, which is also what's in Moderna. So they're unique in that they have this SV40 component and Moderna doesn't. Uh, now there are some issues with that, that sequence is that it's active in mammalian cells you preferably only want some, a promoter that's active in bacterial cells because you're growing this in E. coli, right? Um, but SV40 will will express in both. Uh, the other issue with SV40, that promoter has a, uh, a very famous um, embedded sequence in it known as the SV40 enhancer. It's fully embedded in the promoter. It's this, like 72 base pair sequence that's infamous if you search for it. And that's a sequence that drives the DNA to the nucleus, and it's used in gene therapies. Um, so David Dean has published a lot of work on using this 72 base pair enhancer as a mechanism to move plasma DNA into mammalian cells, nucleuses, so that they can they can get uh, gene uh, gene therapy to go. So um, now, whether that's really happening on this, we don't know, but it is a material legal definition because oh, you okay. need well, to disclose these things. Let, let me let me, before we get to legal legal I, I want to make sure we, f- folks understand what you're what you just said so like because so essentially there's a part of the sv40 uh promoter that that uh called the enhancer the sv40 enhancer and you're saying what it does is it it it, it promotes dna being incorporated exogenous dna being incorporated into the into the into the uh dna of a cell right well so how, how, how well, does that happen it gets it to the nucleus, but the integration is something that needs to be proven. Uh, okay. And so I, I can forge so you a few SP40 papers. The SP40 gets that, it into the nucleus. It gets it yes. into the nucleus, and then we don't, then then we don't know exactly if it integrates or not integrates, right? Yeah, so the it, point is that but but the, you have like yeah, the, the likelihood you know. of integration goes up exponentially once you get through the nucleus, once you get in there, because the, the, they they've always been saying, all right, the mRNA doesn't get in there, so it can't integrate, right? Uh, well, now we have a DNA piece of DNA. 
that's been published to do exactly that, to move DNA into the nucleus, to have stable uh, transformation of mammalian cell lines. Um, and there's a, there's a recent paper out on this, I'll forward to you about mammalian transfection efficiencies and, and uh, integration potential. And it's a, that paper was pointing at something like 7% of the cells would get stably transformed if, if you put in linear pieces of DNA like this. Um, so, okay, so it, it, um, it's likely just, getting integrated. So, we just need to prove it. <laughs> okay. So we don't, we don't know that it's being integrated. What we do know is that there is a item in, uh, there's a, there's a piece of this plasmid, this SB40 enhancer that tends to increase the likelihood that the DNA that's attached to it gets through the cell, the nuclear in, in the nucleus of cells. Yes. Um, but let me ask this. So, like, so it's, it seems like you have a, you have the plasmid. Um, you have some clean, the decontamination cleaning process that ch essentially chops the plasmid up. Like it, you're not necessarily getting the entire plasmid. You're getting no, parts of the No, that's a very good point. You're, very good point. So they are, they're aware of this and they're trying to solve the problem by hitting it with an enzyme known as DNase-1, which chews up DNA and breaks it into smaller pieces. Now, um, there's a problem with that. Is It's one of these scenarios where if you don't run it to completion, you make the problem worse. Because if you chop the plasmid up into small little bits you've now created uh, many more fragments and the integration risks are a function of the ends of the DNA that are available for ligation. Like the, 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 so you have to imagine the ends of DNA have certain chemical units that are very important for integration. They have a, a five prime phosphate and a three prime hydroxyl. And the more of those that you expose in DNA, the more likely those molecules are to actually get integrated. So when you actually chop a plasmin up into small pieces, you make the problem worse. Uh, but if you can chop it all the way up into like single nucleotides, then you, you, you've solved the problem and you can you likely purify that stuff away. I think their goal is to chop it into small bits so that some type of filtration system will clear away the small stuff and, and not leave behind the big stuff. Now, in our, in our study, we, we measured what was there with Oxford Nanopore. And we had about um, the average, the mean size was 214 bases, but had this long tail. We had a couple reads out there that were like three and a half KB. One was two and a half KB. And we only sequenced like 865 reads. So, so if you sequence that really deeply, you'll probably find some that are full length. But those ones actually we're not as worried about because they're less likely to integrate. It's the shrapnel that we're worried about because when the shrapnel gets pulled into the nucleus, it has a higher propensity to, to actually cause damage. There's just more copies of the ends of the molecules. And so they're, they're more likely to but, cause... But it seems like there's, there's, there's one, one worry that I've seen online and elsewhere about, about this process. And that is that uh, well, the spike protein is somehow getting into the DNA, getting integrated in the DNA. But it, the spike protein would have to have uh, a, a chunk that's attached to the SV40 enhancer that that then gets so, to the cell and then right. integrated, right? The so, right, not the protein, but the sequence. Right. Yeah. So whether it's so creating sequence, full length, right. yeah, a full length spike that's permanent. Um, yeah, you you would want you'd want a fairly large piece to get in there, but. Um, that's, I don't think that's our main worry. I mean, it might be that the DNA is hanging around and it's, it's throwing off detection assays that are looking for this DNA or looking for this RNA. Um, that's one issue. But I think the bigger concern is more that if this stuff starts bombarding the genome with promoters, uh, then we have all types of hell can break loose uh, from an oncogenesis standpoint, right? If you, you right, start so, dropping... So these promoters in randomly into the genome, it starts turning on gene expression in random places, then uh, we're, we've, we've got some, you know, we got a problem on our hands. Right. So the, sig the signal then what, that you would look for uh, clinically or in the epidemiological data is a signal of, of increased cancer rates or right. uh, in, in, the, in the populations that have batches that, that 
that we know to be more more uh, with, with higher degree of contamination or less exactly. degree of, of cleaning, right? So that would exactly. be the epidemiological signal that one would look for. And, and um, we tried to look at that preliminarily, but I don't think we have enough data to really um, draw firm conclusions on this because there's a lot of confounders in, in, in studies like that. So we did look at adverse events. Now, uh, on each of these lots, and we tie it to the DNA concentration. Now, the challenge in, in VAERS is that we don't know the size of the lots, so we don't really know how many people were administered this. So what the CDC has done is they typically do something known as a PRR analysis where they say, okay, you don't know the size of the lots. So take the number of total adverse events as a proxy for how many shots were given and then compare that to the serious adverse events. And the ratio of the total adverse events to the serious adverse events is like a proxy for maybe how big the lot size is, and you can normalize the data based on that. So we did that, and there is a, a, a correlation with these uh, increasing DNA concentrations having higher adverse events, but um, there's a lot of other confounders in this that uh, we would caution people saying that that's, this is still exploratory, I'd say, at that stage. Yeah, I mean, uh, I, so if I understand uh, what you've done there, you, you, you find no, no correlation with the Moderna. Um, yeah, almost so, a negative correlation. Yeah, and those and those are probably a log scale lower in DNA concentrations than the Pfizer ones. So uh, it could be that below a certain threshold of this stuff, it, it's noise and, and over and a which, certain amount. Which, so the various the, the various adverse events. There's a whole range of adverse events. Some some much less serious than others. Um, are you looking at particular adverse events in the correlation you find uh, that are that you would anticipate finding? Given the theory, the theory is like okay, there's endotoxins which would cause anaphylaxis, and then there's these. Um, these small R, uh, DNA uh, yeah. incorporators or random into the into the genome potentially. I mean, I don't know that we don't know for certain that's happening, but like if it is happening, that it might cause you know sort of uh, right. uh, 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 you know cancer events. Is that is that what you're seeing, or what are you seeing in the in the? Well, we don't we don't have enough data yet to see that. So the, the few lots that we have, there's only 27 vials in the study, and I think the lots that had. Um, the highest number of adverse events were like in the 42 range or something. They're, they're not, um, so we don't have enough data points to, yeah, to you go really, down. You really to that need level to do this scale. at scale. You need to yeah, do this at exactly. scale. You need a very large study of the sort that, for instance, the US FDA does when it does uh, active surveillance studies. Right. Hundreds of vials uh, we need probably. And uh, and then we know of some folks that are beginning those. So th those are ongoing uh, where they're going to be surveying hundreds of vials to see if this correlates with adverse events. Now, we do have some information uh, so the, the, the Canadian study was just 27 vials in Canada. Uh, but you can take our data that we did in Beverly. And one of those, the monovalent lot there was FL8095. That one has a notorious adverse event ratio. And it's off. It's, it had more than what we found in Canada. Philip Buckholtz's lots were really high as well. And his had really high adverse events. Um, so there, there are a couple other data points from other people pointing to a correlation between high DNA content and high adverse events. But there's a third confounder here. There is a third process change that no one really talks about that we can't ignore, which is that after they did process two, they did process three, which is they changed the buffers. They changed from a PBS buffer to a TRIS buffer at, at Pfizer. Uh, and we, we can't discern that right now. Uh, because the our lots uh, that have high DNA also have high PBS or, or, or PBS lots, right? So uh, there's, well, there's several. Describe, describe that for the audience. What what, do you, what is what is what is that? Uh, what is a PBS lot? What does it what does it mean? So they they one? they change the storage buffer for the uh, for the vaccine halfway through the program. I think their their argument was they wanted to have better storage capacity or something. It was better for freezing and thawing. Moderna was always on Tris, and Pfizer started on PBS. And I think Moderna published some data showing that PBS can like induce aldehyde formation on the DNA and it was bad. So they switched, they switched to, to the TRIS buffers. 
And uh, those that was kind of later in the program. A lot of the lots that we have that have high DNA concentration also happen to have PBS. So I, I don't, I, we can't definitively say it's the DNA or the PBS, but um, that's uh, that'll need more more lots to tease apart. There's there's another confounder in the data. Okay, uh, some of the lots that came out for the children were five X concentrated, and if you go through, so they need to be diluted before you inject them. And if you go through VARES, there's like thousands of cases of people forgetting to to dilute them and injecting them into kids and having to put in overdoses into, into VARES. So the lots for children that we're studying have this additional um, VARES entry. When they report an overdose in VARES, they don't necessarily report that patient again if they happen to have adverse events. They just report, hey, we, we gave this kid 5X too much. We're sorry. It's in VARES. When that patient enters VARES again, their next record doesn't erase the first one. So a lot of the kids that got an over and overdosed with this, we don't have their symptom profile as to whether or not uh, they created adverse events. We just know there's the VARES report. And so we tend to have higher rates of VARES reports for some of the lots that are that have this additional uh, error mode, if you will. So that can confound a study like this. So as I'm sure you're aware, Jay, being in all the large epidemiological studies you're involved in, like confounders are everywhere. Uh, and, and so you need large numbers to rule them out. And we, don't, we just don't have them yet. We just have a hypothesis right now that there's, there's DNAs in there that shouldn't be there. There seems to be some correlation with adverse events. This should be, you should go further, go down this hole deeper and, and see what's there. Yeah, so I mean, I, th- I mean, I think to me that's the main point. The, the, what you identified it seems like it's it's potentially quite important, Kevin, and the replication means that it's quite it's potentially quite important. It's, it's found in a lot of different uh, different files. Um, it's and it's uh, we we, we do, there are still a lot of uncertainties about what it means for people clinically, right? That's so you, you very, know, it's a very good point. Yeah, I, I think it's safe to say what we have found is material from a regulatory standpoint and a legal standpoint. Um, I've had lawyers tell me this is a, a major problem from from adulteration law point, but um, that's probably more ironclad. The clinical implications of this are unknown. Uh, we, we just need more data. It, it, there's so many other things going on with these vaccines that this could just be a tracer molecule, if you will, right? Uh, we, that we can use this to trace where all the vaccines went and what tissues, because it's very easy to amplify DNA. And it's not always easy to find spike protein in every tissue because the spike protein only differs by two prolines compared to the virus, right? So it's very hard to differentiate viral spike protein from vaccine protein. But the the DNA sequences are radically different. They're only 70% identical. We can easily tease apart the vaccine DNA from the virus DNA uh, or RNA for that matter. Uh, so I, I, it, it might just be a great way of, of tracing where all the distribution of this stuff goes and, and tracking the disease, and it may have nothing to do with it. Um, there's there's plenty of papers published on the on the toxicity of the spike protein, and there's other work published from Mark Giordo that talks about um, you know IV accidental IV injection that could be doing this. So I don't want everyone to pin their hopes on like if they get rid of the DNA, they solve this problem. The platform's clean. I mean, just because- just just to just to put a pin on that um, in. The trials, which used process one, there was still, you know, in that Fryman uh, uh, Doshi et al. paper, they found a, a, like a one in eight hundred serious adverse event rate. Right, and, and that's that's using the, the relatively clean process without the without the plasmid contamination. Well, the right? interesting so thing not, about yeah, did you hear the interview with Joe and the FDA? It was on, I think it was on Dr. Drew's. Uh, so they they went into the FDA and. What's interesting at the FDA is they will not consider adverse events that were not first discovered in process one as to be anything that they need to correlate in mass right now. So if they didn't find the adverse event, 
in those really clean samples that they injected the, the, the RCT with, let's say you have now a contaminant that wasn't there that creates different adverse events. None of those qualify as, as, as adverse events of, of special interest because they weren't found in process one. So this is the whole, uh, you know, circular logic problem here. Okay. Of, so, of, all right. We'll, 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 we're gonna, I was going to – this is actually on my list of things to talk about, Kevin, but that's – let's, let's talk about that. At the, it's 10th on the, on the list of 10, right, right. item 9. So let's, let's get to – I, I want to do item 9 because I think item 9 is very, very important. In fact, you've already sort of introduced it, uh, which is the, the regulatory response to Pfizer and Moderna. It seems to me that it that you know Pfizer and Moderna their job is to is to like create vast amounts of this vaccine at scale and then to make a lot of money. The regulator's job is to make sure that what they're doing is safe or sort of meets basic regulatory standards, so that the public isn't getting is getting what they're what they're being told they're getting. Um, so they have some chance of like figuring you know sort of sort of uh, you know uh, knowing knowing what their what their what the vaccine is actually is. Um, now, uh, when the Pfizer Moderna first made applications to the various regulatory agencies in different countries, you, you already mentioned the EMA, the US FDA, the Canadian, um, the Canadian folks, um, in, yeah, Health Canada, what did they tell the regulators about process one, this process versus process two, the E. coli manufacturing? What did they tell them about the plasmid? What did they, what, and what did they not tell? these regulators? So the most information we have is through the EMA, just due to the disclosures that occurred. We, we're assuming what they gave the EMA would be the same to the FDA and Health Canada. And Health Canada has an email that's come out suggesting um, some concordance here. So the EMA was shown a plasmid map that had this SV40 region deleted, um, which is very bizarre because when I plug that sequence into my tools, it, it paints it for me. I'd have to spend effort to remove it. So that to me looks like an intentional <laughs> so, version. Uh, so, so. Just so, just so we're like the, paint the picture here. You have this DNA sequence that your machine has produced that, that, yes. that has all of the base pairs, one after the other. I, I look at these things and I just go, okay, gosh, C, G, T, A. I mean, okay, what is what does this mean? I don't know what this means. It's overwhelming. There if you are, don't have a tool. Yeah. So, there, but there's like vast databases of of like human and non-human DNA sequences that are that are painted. Painted meaning like, okay, this is producing this protein that does this. This is producing this promoter that does that, and then and probably links to like 500 studies for each of the thing. To so you can go do a deep dive and say, okay, this little sequence does that, right? I, I put a, a substack together to teach people. It's so easy to do. You, you can download a free piece of software called Snapgene. You can load the Pfizer sequence into it. It will paint all of these SV40 components on, on onto the uh, onto the plasmid. Um, in fact, so you you so you're, what you're saying is that you 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 when you did this sequence, you found the plasmid, you sequenced it, you sent it to this program, this the SnapGene program, and the yep. SnapGene immediately painted out SB40, uh, you know, sort of spike protein, yeah. you know, so I, on and so forth. They I did not discover SB, I did not discover the SB40. SnapGene just automatically by default painted it on the plasmid, which is why I'm very confused why it's missing and, from Pfizer's map that they okay. gave to the EMA. Because that so, tells yeah, so, okay, so Pfizer sends the plasmid. Yes, they did send the plasmid they sequence. The plasmid. Um, and, and, uh, and they and they painted they painted they painted parts of the the, the plasmid, but yeah, not. Yeah, it's like they spray painted over the part they didn't want people to see. <laughs> it's they, a, whole, a huge section of it has just got it's totally unannotated, and uh, that would actually create more work for me. I'd have to go into what Snapgene gave me and go and erase stuff and then give it to the FDA. 
Okay. So, uh, so to me, this so looks like EMA, um, look, look, Can we talk about the regulators for a second? What do yeah. they do? Do they do they take this sequence and then throw it into SnapGene generally, or do they just take the word of Pfizer? I think they just take the word of Pfizer and probably a user fee on top of it. Probably gets stowed away in a file somewhere. I mean, there, there's this is a really deep rabbit hole on, on regulatory capture that that might go beyond just this one podcast. But uh, people have to recognize that uh, the way this FDA system has grown, uh, they were they departed from being purely tax funded a long time ago, and now half of their revenue is actually coming from the PDUFA Act of 1992, which means that they defray the cost of the regulation by charging user fees to pharma. PDUFA prescription so, prescription drug, drug user fee act. Uh, and that's like that means that literally like pharma will pay to have their their yes. uh, products get expedited uh, consideration. Yes. Yes. So right. uh, so I think what happens is they they overwhelm them with information and the regulators can't read it all. They put it in a file and uh, if the user piece fee is paid, it moves on. Uh, and so uh, I suspect that's what happened is that if you do go through the documents, it will take you time because there is immense amounts of material that are that are in the in these EMA disclosures. So, that I can't so, imagine so there's this one page that says, OK, we used a plasmid uh, and here's the here's what the 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 the, the various parts of the plasma were, but is missing SV40. SV40 would have in, in the minds of a of a competent regulator would said, well, would have it would induced a few more questions, I would imagine. Oh, it would have it would have sent alarm bells up and down if they were spelled that out because of the twenty year debate, thirty year debate we've had on SV forty being in prior vaccines. Uh, not okay. not to mention the fact that it's a mammalian promoter. It has this nuclear localization signal that would probably t- deem it a gene therapy. So it, it would have triggered multiple alarm bells, which is why I think it was removed. Uh, now did the Moderna, sequence was there, Moderna? but the annotation of it was not there, and that's important because Health Canada had the same problem. They, after they saw our data, they came out saying, "Oh, you're right. We have the sequence file. We looked at it, and we can see the SV40 that 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 our team found." And uh, and so they've they've at least come out clean with that, saying, "Yes, it, it's it's there, but it's still safe and effective." What about what about uh, what about Pfizer's? Uh, what about Moderna? Did they Moderna also? Uh, so that's redact. a good question. So Moderna, I don't think had this process one, process two thing go on. I think they started in plasmids out of the gate, and they do have lower amounts of DNA contamination. An interesting aspect of Moderna is there is a hundredfold more spike DNA than plasma than the backbone of the DNA in there, and I, I think that's uh, a symptom of these nucleases. They they don't work as well when there's an RNA uh, a copy in there that's homologous to the DNA. So you make all this RNA off of DNA. Well, that RNA has is, is got a reverse complement of DNA in the solution. So the DNA doesn't know how to clear that. But it does a great job clearing all of the plasmid DNA that doesn't have an RNA complement, but it can't clear the DNA that is underneath the RNA. Um, and that's, that's actually, there's some published papers from Sutton et al. that show that the D- DNAs1 doesn't do a very good job with DNA-RNA hybrids. Uh, so... But they've done a better job overall, I think, crushing the the, um, the, the DNA down to smaller sizes. So uh, the, the, maybe since they started in process one with this, they were kind of forced to get the DNA low from the start and kept it there. Whereas Pfizer kind of did their trial where they didn't have this problem, moved it to this new process and found perhaps under warp speed pressure of, of you know, under the gun. OK, we have we have a DNA problem and uh, and we're going to have to do what we can to try and. Uh, wiggle this through the number the, the regulations. Um, there, there are some some bizarre things in the in the regulatory documents that show 
what Pfizer is trying to do to, to evade the regulations is they are not measuring the DNA and the RNA with the same tool. They, they made PCR primers to measure the DNA just like, just like we did. And normally what you would do is you take those same primers and measure the RNA with them just by changing the polymerase to something that can amplify RNA. Uh, they didn't do that. They moved to a whole different platform to measure the RNA, uh, known as fluorometry, which inflates the numbers tremendously so that they could get a bigger RNA to DNA ratio. That's important for the EMA because the EMA has a different guideline. They're, they have a ratiometric guideline where you have to have so much RNA to DNA and it can't exceed a certain amount of DNA. But to get so, so, around that, that they, they, they changed the tools that they used to measure it to present numbers to the regulators. And that probably went over the regulators' heads that that was a material change. So, so the, the Pfizer submission to the, to the EMA, the claim is that they redacted SV40 in the annotation of the plasmid and they used a process of measuring the amount of RNA to DNA so to, to, to essentially inflate the amount of RNA uh, relative to the DNA. And then um, and that meets the regulatory standard then for the EMA. The EMA says you have to have many, 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 many copies of RNA relative for each copy of the DNA as a yes. way of saying, okay, you can't have a lot. Of, I mean, you can't get to zero. No, uh, but it's approximately you know, no 3,000. They want a ratio of like 3,030 of RNA to DNA. And they want it below a certain threshold of total DNA. But this, this brings up um, an important point about how do we come up with this threshold? Who came up with it? Why, why is there a 10 nanogram threshold? I was, well, I was just about to ask that. Like, why, what, who, well, how do you decide? Because like, what I would do if I, were, if I were sitting in charge of this process is I would say, okay, well, what thresholds uh, lead to you know, uh, a certain almost. amount number of, of, of adverse events? If it's more than like you know, N adverse events of, of really, really serious kinds, uh, and I would try to like get some dose response curve in mice or something and then say, okay, well, we'll, we'll be even more... Uh, conservative in humans, and then uh, so allow that you have to have it, you know, double or triple or, or quadruple whatever the thresholds are, uh, so that it would never produces any adverse events in mice. And then I would so, set so, it like that. Yeah, there are, and there are, and the FDA has done that. So there are two papers that we reference in uh, our preprint. One is is from um, uh, Keith Pedden's group. I think the first uh, author is Sheng Fowler, and that paper um, looks. At how do they come to the 10 nanogram level? Well, they came there because they, they were looking at host cell DNA contamination. So let's say you grow a vaccine in a mammalian cell, and when you open up that mammalian cell, you get some of the genomic DNA from the host cell. And 10 nanograms of DNA, that's maybe you know, 1,200, 1,500 copies of the genome. Not a lot of copies. Uh, important to also know that back in 1986, these levels were a thousandfold lower at 10 picograms. It was only after the NCVIA came into place, which is the National Childhood Vaccine Injury Act that Reagan put in place, that we saw the DNA guidelines balloon a thousandfold you know, over 10 years. Um, so they're now at 10 nanograms. They used to be at 10 picograms. They came to them because they were, they were in a different era where they were worried about host cell DNA coming through. And that DNA wasn't necessarily going to be in a lipid nanoparticle. It would probably get injected and your body would eat it up. And it has a 10-minute half-life when injected, okay? That's not a big deal. We have a different situation here where it's not genomic DNA. So 10 nanograms of the DNA that we're working with is 100 billion to 200 billion copies because it's so small. It's not three gigabases in size. It's, it's, it's 200 bases in size. So we now have hundreds of billions of copies, hundreds of billions of active ends of DNA, and they're in a lipid nanoparticle. And they have a nuclear targeting sequence. So this is a completely different problem. And so, even so, in, so the, the, in, in the, the work... The regulators set those thresholds based on uh, uh, essentially 
antiquated. DNA that is not covered by the lipid nanoparticle had, doesn't have a, a promoter that nucle- that essentially puts it into the nucleus. Um, and so, but and so, like it meets those old those thresholds that that are uh, you know uh, uh, that 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 don't apply specifically to the to this process for to this this product. Like you, yes, would, you and, would, for you, this, and, you have a different threshold. You'd you'd, you'd require you, you a wanted, much lower, lower threshold. And, and there is some. These are guidelines. They're not like regulations and law, but they're guidelines. And in 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 um, Keith Pedden's work, you can see he makes mention of this that when you're dealing with host cell genomic DNA, there's only so many copies. If this were a viral uh, particle that were a contaminant, there would be uh, there'd be much higher copy number, and these regulations would have to move to fentagrams to atograms. Like he he he's aware of this. He, he made he made that association with copy number and molarity. It's more important to know molarity than mass when you're dealing with these things. Uh, the second paper that we reference is from Klinman, and they go into the point that if there are any bioactive pieces of DNA, uh, the 200 base pair limit that they have in some of these regulations, it's 10 nanograms larger than 200 bases. He says that's no longer applies because some of these bioactive things can be seven bases long and they can integrate and disrupt a gene. So if you're dealing with something like an SV40 promoter, uh, you have a bioactive molecule there that doesn't fit the 200 base pair limit because it can be active at a smaller size. So there's there's a couple things in their own guidelines that suggest, hey, we're in different territory here, but maybe at the speed at which they move, they didn't think to apply this uh, that, this information. So um, yeah, I, I'm uh, I'm quite worried that the the way that they're measuring them is quite antiquated. They didn't anticipate this transfection efficiency effect and these nuclear targeted sequences. And the 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 right now the regulators are giving them a choose your own adventure option of how they measure these things, which um, you know they they should measure the DNA and RNA with the same tools so they're normalized. Like that that would be the right thing to do. RT PCR versus qPCR would tell you the DNA to RNA levels. Instead, they're using some fluorometry thing that inflates one and, and the other one. So it's really easy to just game the regulations uh, when you make a, a ma- massive process change like this. Uh, and that, that I think we should bring some attention to that, that you can't do that, particularly if you're going to make a post-RCT process change and then have the freedom to just game all the numbers. Uh, it, it leads I, to I mean, I saw, some, I saw some folks uh, online, uh, I mean, I assume they're pharma paid because they're, they're – they, they, but they're, they're like trying to do some back-of-the-envelope calculations about, uh, about transfection eff- efficiency in some in vitro work. Uh, and, they, they, and what they end up with is like, uh, well, uh, it, it's, it's very, very, very unlikely to transfect. Uh, at the scale that uh, that that it uh, that, that, that is actually injected, um, and uh, my, my reaction to that was, well, how do they know? Like, essentially, we're talking about different processes based on um, this pro- this product with is you know it's, it, it has an LNP uh, that 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 you don't have in the old data. You I, I don't really understand how anyone can have any certainty. I mean, I'm not saying that it's that it's. I'm not saying it does either. Yeah, well. I'm with you. We don't have certainty either we way. Don't know. Yeah, we yeah. don't have certainty that it integrates, but we certainly don't have certainty that it doesn't. And there are differences here. Like even, even polyethylene glycol, it's one of these reagents that we use in molecular biology to like accelerate reactions. Like ligation reactions, you put in like 5% polyethylene glycol and it goes much, much faster. It's a crowding reagent. That's in that. That's in the LMPs. We don't know what that does to transfection efficiency, right? It could. It could. Uh, the papers that that I think Philip Buckholt has sent around and others were, were were pointing out about seven percent of uh, when they did this mammalian transfection experiment that somewhat mimics what these vaccines might do. It doesn't have all the components of the LMPs and the PEG, but they were getting like seven percent of the cells to 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 be to be integrated in 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 vitro. This is not humans, but it, it's a model. So at those levels, and you're dealing with billions of LMPs across billions of people, 
integration is happening somewhere. It's just whether it's clinically relevant or not. And uh, is it happening in cells that just get destroyed by the immune system afterwards? That's a really good question. I mean, uh, that's one thing that gets pushed back on online as well is who cares if you have all this, you know, cargo that comes with the, the, this, the, this um, mRNA, it's going to, the immune system is going to attack those cells and kill them anyway. Um, but I, I don't, I don't see that in the data. I see papers that keep coming out showing they can detect spike mRNA 28 days later. They can detect the spike protein on exosomes four months later and bansel it all. You go into Patterson's data, you can see it out two years. All right, so, so something is lingering, which means these cells aren't dying instantly. Uh, I, don't, I don't know if they're immune privileged cells. I don't know what they are, but uh, they, they have to. Uh, I think that the, the time is to like, let's go measure this and, and we don't have to argue so much online. Let's just let the data speak. Yeah, let's 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 actually do some science to figure it out. I mean, you guys, not. I mean, I, I'm going to sit in my computer and like analyze epidemiological data, but that's it. <laughs> um, well, we Brad, might need you, to tap on your shoulder if the study gets big enough to be at epidemiological scales. We'll we'll call you up. <laughs> Rob, you looks like you had a question. Yeah, about the the communication you guys had with Health Canada and their shocking admission. Um, can you expand on that, Kevin, and explain a little bit so about I, the nature? Of that communication, I'm taking this a bit secondhand. I, I wasn't. Uh, I, I wasn't on this email. This is, someone else did some FOIAs. I did get some some people asking me questions, like what questions would you ask of them, and I, I forwarded those. But I don't know if those uh, if those were from the same same report. But what I what I read online is probably not too dissimilar from what you've seen, which is that Health Canada did come back saying yes. We went back and looked at the sequence given to us, and we can see the SV40 um, enhancer that is described. Uh, it was not initially brought to our attention, and it is a bioactive ingredient, um, which should have been brought to our attention, but we still believe it's safe and effective. I mean, I'm, I'm paraphrasing. I, I should point people to the actual um, communication that's there. Um, so that is that is a bit of a shock um, in that, in, in some ways, is a bit of a relief for us in that it, it, the people who have been accusing uh, Philip and myself and everyone else of dumpster diving and, and putting these plasmids in the vials as some sort of anti-vax hoax um, can can be rest assured that that now Health Canada is part of our hoax. Um, but uh, so it's, it's kind of gotten rid of that kind of vial provenance question because uh, Pfizer themselves gave this information to regulators. So Pfizer agrees that it's there. I think the only thing that's in debate is like, how are we measuring it? How much of it is there? And is it clinically relevant? And those are all valid, valid questions. Uh, and uh, I don't think we have firm answers to those. But the more people that measure this, the more data points we'll put on that, that dose response curve. Uh, and that will pro- hopefully uh, help inform people on, on the priorities for getting rid of this or stopping the vaccines until they get rid of this. Um, this is something that uh, <laughs> many lawyers are claiming this is an adulterated product now and Health Canada has has proven it. So, Kevin, I want to, I wanted to end uh, the, the podcast with a, with a dis, just a, a little discussion about uh, a, about like what uh, about about what we actually owe to people when we ask them to take something like this. I think neither of us are here claiming that it's that this that this process that you've identified is 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 has led to a tremendous harm. You're saying that it might have, and that that this is something that we that ought to have been considered. Uh, that there, and that there may even also have been some um, some hiding of this from uh, from regulators by by Pfizer. Uh, all, all that is just possible, right? Um, let's leave aside the legal stuff because I, I think that that's that that's better had with like people who actually you know do lo- uh, who, who are lawyers and do this for a living. I just want to like talk talk through like w- what obligation do we have to patients when we're offering up a product like this? 
like like I think probably the best frame for this is to talk about informed consent, right? What what should we uh, tell a patient? How, what should patients sort of be able to take for granted given the regulatory process? And how has that gone astray here? Like what you know? And, and then I want to bring it back to like what 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 could have been done early. I mean, this is something that was you discovered uh, years after the fact, right? Not not immediately after uh, uh, after the the, the the vaccine was was introduced. Um, what could have been done then, and what what uh, what ought we do now? Well, I I think we got here because there's an ethos of um, you, know, you can't handle the science out there that, that that we need to promote lots of noble lies because we can't show you what's really going on, otherwise we'll scare you. And um, that that to me I think is uh, is a convenient uh, answer for for the pharmaceutical industry to say that some things just aren't meant for public consumption. Um, I, I think the informed consent could have been more clear here, right? There, there should have been some discussion about the fact that, hey, there, there are sequences in here that we don't, we don't know what they do when they're transfected in, in, into, into human people and in large populations at a time, particularly when mandates are involved, right? Um, now, to, just to answer this, some of the things that bias my assessment of this are um, when I've looked at John Bodwin's data on the death records in Massachusetts, you see all of this post-vaccination mayhem going on from myocarditis to, to lymph, lymph, uh, lymphomas, cancers. You know, it's, it's, it's temporally associated, and uh, he's got probably some of the hardest data that there are some adverse events from these things that are directly linked to the vaccines. And then I, I've seen Den- Denny Rancourt's work looking at the Southern Hemisphere uh, and, you know, his numbers are pointing at a lot of, um, you know, temporal correlation with the vaccine, vaccine program associating with excess mortality that isn't going away. So I, I think the public, uh, I don't think it, it helps to coddle them. I think we have to assume that, that the public is as intelligent as everyone else and they should have all of the data. And uh, that data should not be hid from anybody because we're afraid it might be used as misinformation with anti-vaxxers. Um, that that's kind of the, the, the temperament that I, I, I run into when people hear about our work. They're like, well, you're scaring people and you're creating vaccine hesitancy by by pointing out data. Uh, and I think like, I think I agree with you. I think that uh, so for instance, I don't, I don't I'm not I'm not convinced by um, I mean, I, I've seen like some of the the active surveillance efforts by the FDA who identified some serious adverse events. I, I'm not, I mean, I, I, I th- I'm, I'm open to the idea that the vaccine may have been beneficial for some groups like older people and not less beneficial for others like young people. I don't think we have, at least I'm not convinced by the data I've seen one way or the other to have a definitive picture of, of exactly the, the full epidemiological effects of the vaccine. But I completely agree with you that this is one of those things where like we owe the public full information about this new product. With this, with this new mechanism, uh, and and even if if there's uh, serious uh, findings like the one that you have, you found, Kevin, why should the public not know about it? What there's not there's no way to like hide it. Essentially, if you try to hide it, you end up creating uh, worse hesitancy than if you. Yeah, I mean, it's just people will just say, "Well, but we'll assume the worst of you if you're because okay, you 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 think you're being noble with your lie, but you're I just think you're lying." Um, yeah. And not just about this, but maybe many other things. And I think it's and that I think your take on it is quite sensible on this. Like, why not just have this conversation out in public? Uh, and, and then we'll see. Let's just do good science around it. I was brought up in an ethos on the Human Genome Project where we put every sequence live within 24 hours of generating it for everyone to use. That was trusting the public with information they probably had no idea how to interpret. And, and now we're in this in a very different environment where 
uh, if you put any negative information out or just, I just even call it negative. Negative is, is, is a subjective interpretation of data. But if you put any data out on the vaccine, if they don't like it, they will accuse you of inducing vaccine hesitancy by, uh, by unveiling this to the public and that maybe it should be filtered to some degree and people should be calmed down about it. I, I, I don't think it's appropriate to be white knighting uh, other people's uh, lack of intelligence, if you will, or assuming that other people can't, uh, can't handle the truth. Uh, I think the most the best thing you can do is be transparent with information and and let the world sort it out by by, by putting it out there. So um, yeah, that, that's I think that's been my biggest dis- disappointment for the, for the last many years on this is that uh, there is nothing you can say um, that will bend the narrative unsafe and effective. Uh, and anyone who tries to question that gets canceled or or censored. And I mean you've you've been through this on other topics, Jay, with the whole social media censorship. And I know you're involved well, I- in that important case. I mean, I was, I was going to ask you about the cost that you faced, uh, Kevin, in, in, um, in, in bringing some of this information out to light. Like it, it's not, uh, and it's not just, it's not just the vaccines. Like I remember the pushback that you had, remember we talked at the beginning of this podcast about your critique of the Drosten PCR and the, the, the very nasty attacks on you and, and on others who signed on to that and, and, and developed that critique. Um, it's, it's, uh, you know, and of course the, the, the podcast is about the illusion of consensus. Um, it seems to me that this is the way the illusion of consensus gets gets created by essentially de- uh, demonizing anyone, even with fantastic credentials and good logical, good scientific arguments, demonizing anyone that disagrees with, you know, uh, what what Tony Fauci might think or what what Pfizer might say. Um, and it, it's, it's striking. I mean, I, I, and I agree with you. I've never seen anything like it I, in my, in my career. I, I mean, I've been, I've been a, uh, you know, I've been, I've been a, a researcher for over 20 years. Uh, the, the, the environment is, is entirely different the last three and a half years than anything I've seen in my entire career. Usually it, now, people have valued openness. I, my family was always nervous when we pivoted into the cannabis field to start sequencing, you know, this, this, this dangerous plant, right? Uh, I never have had my uh, home address circulated for swatting my home, sequencing the cannabis genome. I've only had that for sequencing this vaccine. All right. So there's a much larger, I think, cartel involved here than there is in, in anything in the cannabis field. So, uh, I mean, this would be a good, a good area to branch off into maybe a different cast on, um, there's perhaps some people I can put you in touch with. There's, there's like this group called shots heard around the world, which is a pharma funded, um, basically hit piece tank that runs around and writes hit pieces on people like myself and you and other people. Uh, and they have pharma money and their goal is to run around and, and turn everyone into Andrew Wakefield that, that questions the narrative. Um, so, uh, we have to, you know, digging into some of those organizations to, to understand them. I also understand your, your, your university had something like this funded as well. That was involved in, in, um, uh, in, in censorship. That is so, yeah, uh, some... in an observatory. I mean, they, what, right. they, they, what they do is they get, they get funding from the NSF and I think they cooperate pretty closely with, uh, CISA, this, this, uh, agency inside the state department. Um, right. and what, and what they do is they develop, they, 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 they develop a hit list for censorship themes and people that they think are spreading, even though it's legal speech, sometimes truth, true idea, like ob- clearly true ideas, but are inconvenient for, for whatever reason they do, they deem them misinformation. And because of the government connection, they can, they have deep connections with social media companies, which then implement the agenda created by groups like the Stanford Internet Observatory, um, with, with the government telling them that if you don't implement this agenda, 
which is a censorship agenda, ban these people and these ideas. The government then says to the social media companies, well, you know, we can regulate you out of existence. Uh, the government then is basically offloading its defamation of people to private uh, universities and to private uh, and, to, and to NGOs, which develop the hit list for censorship. And then the government then forces the censorship to happen by going to the companies and uh, social media companies and, and threatening them. Uh, we learned, by the way, this all sounds like a conspiracy theory, I know, but it's, it's, uh, no, but it's it was confirmed. Yeah. Yes, yes, yes. It's a federal judge has seen the evidence. We had tremendous, uh, like a tremendous open access to uh, uh, sort of government records. We dip, deposed Tony Fauci and a dozen other federal, uh, federal uh, uh, officials, including at the FBI, the Surgeon General's Office, the CDC, the White House itself. Um, and we have documents to show all of what I just said is true. I mean, it's, it's absolutely yeah. shocking, Kevin. I mean, they're, they're just laundering their lysenkoism through private industry, right? It's, it's, yeah. it's, it's a way of, of getting it off the government books, but having it have proxy arms that uh, are, are one step removed from the constitutional violations that they're, that, that they're pursuing. Uh, so, right. yeah, dark times, but... Um, you know, I, I do. I'm an optimist. I think I think uh, decentralized forces are stronger. We have the internet on our side, and we have tools like this platform that are getting the word out. And uh, the harder they squeeze, it's like water through a fist. And uh, eventually, the, the the public wakes up. Yeah. Well, Rob, any uh, any final questions from you? No, no, I I don't think so. Um, this has been really interesting. Um, I, I guess I'm, I'm wondering, we'll see what happens in the future. Um, what, if, whether health Canada or the FDA, other regulators, um, look at this and how they respond to it in terms of like, is the vaccine going to be continued to be administered this new updated vaccine and future updated vaccines, or are they going to, you know, reformulate something or pull, pull it off the shelves or what's exactly going to happen? I'm, I'm very curious about that. I guess we'll see. I mean, it's funny. I, I, it's like, oh, sorry, Kevin, go ahead. My guess is the the market is going to move faster than the regulators, and people are just going to stop taking it. I mean, I was going to say that, Kevin. I mean, the uptake for the this fact, this, the COVID vaccine I saw last week in the U.S. to date, this 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 latest updated one is about two percent of the U.S. population has taken it, and yeah. that despite an enormous propaganda campaign by by, by the government and pharma, um, I've never seen the like. Uh, you normally vaccine campaigns are tr are tr are deemed failures if they don't get you know eighty percent uptake for the target groups, you know something like that. Uh, here, two percent. Uh, that is that it, that indicates an, an, a catastrophic failure in public trust in public health. It's it's, it's interesting because this would be the time where they would have the least to lose to actually maybe save some face and and like pull the plug. Uh, because there's really not much money left on the table anymore. But if they're going to, they might just ride this one right into the ground, which is uh, be really unfortunate. Yeah. Well, Kevin, thank you so much. I've admired your work uh, through the whole pandemic, and it's really great to have a chance to uh, have this extended conversation with you. Uh, thank you for coming on the on the podcast with us. Yeah, thank you so yeah, much thanks, for having Kevin. me, Jay. And uh, yeah, feelings mutual. I've been following your work the whole way through, and I've always uh, all the early IFR stuff was was critical. That changed my perspective on everything and um, got me pointing the right direction. So many kudos to your uh, to your work there. Thank you. Thanks, Kevin. All right, take care, Ralph.